0: This morning, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 29. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "'Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover?' He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Matthew tells us here that this is the first day of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the first day of the Passover week, that Jewish holiday. This was a national holiday and a religious holiday, unlike Mother's Day. It was both national and religious. And you'll notice that the disciples come to him with the expectation that we are going to be celebrating the Passover It was a right expectation because this was a holiday that was to be celebrated by the Jewish people in perpetuity. They were to continually celebrate this holiday as a national and religious holiday year after year as they continued. You remember that first Passover, that inaugural Passover day, was a day on which every household in the nation of Israel was to take a lamb and they were to slay that lamb and then they would take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint the lintels and the doorposts of their home with the blood of that lamb. And then they would take that lamb within their home and they were to cook that lamb and they were to consume that entire lamb. And as they did so that evening... The angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, and everywhere that that angel of death saw the blood painted over the doorposts and the lintels of that home, he passed over that home. But those homes that he did not see, that blood painted upon the doorposts and the lintels, he brought death upon the firstborn in those homes. And so the Passover was. A day on which the nation of Israel was celebrating that inaugural event where the Lord redeemed them from the hands of their oppressors and those that they were enslaved to. It was a day of national remembrance, a day of remembering His redemption and of the exercise of His sovereign hand on their behalf, giving them redemption. And so when the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? He immediately directs them to Jerusalem that they are to go into the city and they will find a man. And that man, as we find out in the other Gospels, will have an upper room that they go to celebrate this Passover meal in. And it is at this Passover meal with His disciples in that upper room that He institutes what we have come to call the Lord's Supper. He does so, as he says in verse 18, because, quote, his time is at hand, meaning his death. Jesus has been prophesying week after week in the Gospel of Matthew that he is going to be betrayed, that he is going to be crucified, and he's saying now the time is at hand. And so they are to celebrate this Passover, the Lord's Supper, together. Jesus prophesies while they're at the table that one of them will betray Him. And the disciples with a kind of disgust and indignation will each ask, is it I, as they go around the table, and it will get to Judas, and Judas himself will ask, is it I, Rabbi, is it I, Lord, Teacher? And Jesus will say, it is as you have said. Judas... Already knew that he was a betrayer, and Jesus affirms him in it. Just quickly, this betrayal was predestined. And yet, we see in the text also very clearly that Judas is also responsible. Jesus says it would have been better for him not to have been born than to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning because we're going to be able to tackle it in the texts that come as we continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew. But we have a passage here where we see this divine authority and we see human responsibility that they both are able to go hand in hand. Jesus is very clear here. Judas chose to betray Jesus in the freedom of his own will. He chose this action, and yet it is also true that this was predetermined, and it was predestined by God. Those two things are not antithetical, and they go together. And we'll see that as we continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew. But what I want to do this morning is I want to spend our time on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Uh, This is not a regular sermon for me. This would be a lot less exegetical, expository, and a lot more theological. But I want to do so because there have been so many questions over this last year and a half about the Lord's Supper that I want to address that with you. And this is the text to do it uh, this morning. I want to look at it in three ways this morning. We're going to try and look at what's happening at the Lord's table. And we're going to see two things this morning. One, at the Lord's table, we will see our union with Christ. Second, we'll see our union with one another. And then third, as much time as I have, uh, I want to go through a lot of quick questions that have been asked over the last year and try and give quick answers. And we'll do as many of those as the time affords this morning. So this Passover celebration, if we think about that, it was a participation in covenant with the God of Israel who worked in the past, and it was a covenant meal where they would gather together and they would eat of this lamb that was slain for them, and this blood of this lamb that covered over their doorposts. And so it was a participation with their covenant-keeping God in this covenant-keeping meal as they're covered over by this blood. And so it is the same in the Lord's Supper. We participate in the Christ who was crucified 2,000 years ago in a covenant meal, and we enjoy our union with Him as we receive Him by faith and as we sup with God in this covenant meal recognizing that we have been delivered. But you'll notice that now it's unbloody. And it's unbloody because the Lamb has already been slain. And so it is an unbloody covenant renewal ceremony where we sit in the presence of our God and enjoy our union with Him. What is happening as we come to the table? Well, I think Augustine has defined it better than any... When Augustine said that the sacraments are the visible word. The visible word. That is what you you hear preached to you from the Bible week in and week out. The gospel. That now what happens is when you and I come to the sacraments of baptism and to the Lord's table, we now are able to, to bring it in with all of our other senses. What we have just heard with our ears Now we are able to see, and we are able to smell, and we are able to taste, and we are able to touch. As Calvin would say, God did this for us out of His mercy and grace because He knew that you and I are weak, and we're feeble, and we're frail, corporeal beings. That is, we have bodies, and so we want something we can touch. We want something we can sense with our other senses and not just hear. And so, God, in an act of great mercy and condescension, He gives us the sacraments to, as it were, Calvin said, prop up our faith on every side, to encourage us that indeed what we have heard is true, it's real. The Lord's Supper simply pictures before our senses the truth of Christ, the Passover lamb dying for sinners. But what is happening at the Lord's Supper? What's actually happening as we observe it? This may come as a shock to you, but there is quite a debate. This has probably caused more division in the church than any other doctrine in the history of the church has been the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And it all revolves around verse 26 here. And one word. One word. The word is. Jesus says this. He says, this is my body. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It is. So we have to start here and we have to say the Lord's table, it signifies That is, it is a sign, to use Paul's language in Romans 4 when he's talking about the sacrament of circumcision. It is a sign, he says, and it is a seal. It's a sign. It signifies as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, you are reminded by your senses that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy. That Christ's body was bruised. You see it as the bread is broken. That Christ's blood was shed. You see it as the juice or the wine is poured out. You see as a sign before you that Christ gives Himself to His people as the pastor who represents Christ extends to you the cup and the bread. You see all this, it is signified to you, you see the need for faith. That is, as you take the bread and as you take the drink within you, it is a sign for the need for faith within. The total consuming of the lamb. And so, all our senses are engaged. Your eyes, your ears, your taste, your touch. But here's the question, how do we understand Is? does he mean by is? Well, some understand is to be purely metaphorical. This historically has been called the Zwinglian view. Though Zwingli himself did not advocate this view. It's been attributed to him. You most often see it in uh, many Baptist churches, especially Anabaptist circles. But where The Lord's table is just a memorial. It's seen as a mere remembrance by the person who is taking it of Christ's sacrifice 2,000 years before. You're just remembering. You're just looking back and you're just being reminded that Christ died for sinners. And you're looking back to that. Just mere remembrance. It's a sign. It's just simply a sign. But it's not simply a sign. You'll notice in the text that Christ doesn't show the disciples the bread and the wine. He also gave it to the disciples to eat. Look at verse 26. Take, eat, this is my body. It's pretty clear that Christ is giving His disciples a spiritual blessing. They are to eat it, not just to look at it and remember. They are to take it within themselves. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we would see there that Paul uses this language of someone coming to the table and taking of the table unworthily. And as he says, when they come to the table and they take of it unworthily, they eat and they drink judgment upon themselves. Well, how can they eat and drink judgment upon themselves? Well, the reverse is also true. If you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself, then you can come to the table and you can also receive blessing. That's the other, side, the other side of the covenant, right? You have cursing and you have blessing. And here are some who are coming to the table unworthily. And because they're coming unworthily, Paul says, they are accruing judgment to themselves. Some, he says, have fallen asleep. That is, they've died because of it. Why? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, He says, because at the table you are participating in Christ. It's a participation in Him. And so there is judgment and there is cursing. Based upon whether you come in faith, there's blessing. If you don't come in faith, then there is judgment. It's a covenant meal. You're participating in Christ. It is not just metaphorical here some have understood is to mean that Jesus is physically, bodily, present at the table. The Roman Catholic view has taught the doctrine of what we call transubstantiation, became the official Roman dogma in the 1200s. And according to the Roman church, it believes and teaches that the bread and the wine, when they are consecrated by the priest, when he says the words over the... The elements, it's actually, it's in Latin, I can't remember exactly, Hoc est something, but it's a word we get hocus-pocus from. Because as he says, "Hoc est etc., then in that moment, the elements, the bread and the wine, they are transformed. And they're no longer bread, they are no longer wine. They have physically become the physical body of the Lord Jesus and the physical blood of the Lord Jesus. It still looks like bread, it still looks like wine, but they have essentially become the body and blood of Jesus. And this is why after the priest has said those words and consecrated the elements in a Roman mass, they will lift those elements up because those elements are to be adored. And everyone in the congregation is to give adoration to those elements. As one Roman Catholic theologian wrote, we treat them as we would treat God because that is what they are. And yet, in doing this, the sacrament actually ceases to be a sign, doesn't it? It's no longer a sign. Because the sign is swallowed up by the thing it is meant to signify. The bread and the cup, they don't point to Christ, they become Christ. And that does violence to the language of Paul in Romans 4. Luther also believed that Christ was physically present in the sacrament, but he rejected this doctrine of transubstantiation. He believed in a doctrine that we will end up calling consubstantiation. He will look at the table and he will say, look, Jesus said this is my body, this is my blood. And so he must be physically present at the table. And so in Luther's mind, he said it's not that those elements are transformed. He found that to be an abomination. But what he said is that Christ is locally present. He is with, under, and around the elements. So that when you take the bread and when you take the cup, which remain bread and which remain wine or juice, that when you take it, Christ physically or locally, is the language He would use, is with, under, and around. So that when you partake, you partake of Christ physically. Why these views? Because of the words here. Christ says to us in verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. There's a famous moment in Reformation history where Luther and Zwingli will decide to meet together so that the church, there's concern that the Protestant church will fracture and create all of these different splinter groups like we see today. So Luther and Zwingli will have a famous meeting at Marburg where they will I don't remember how many doctrines, but they will meet for a couple of days and there will be dozens and dozens of doctrines that they will go through together and they will agree on every single one of them. But they get to the Lord's table and they can't agree. Luther just keeps hitting the table, it said in church history, over and over with a knife saying, is, is, is. Where Zwingli understood that Luther's view of the table was not just something that struck at the Lord's table. it was a Christological issue. It speaks of what you and I believe concerning Christ. He kept saying, "Is, is, is." But when Jesus says in John 15:1, "I am the true vine, is he actually a vine? When he says in John ten 9, I'm the door, is he actually a door? No, when Jesus speaks at the Lord's table and says, this is my body, this is what we would call metonymy in grammar, that is, there is one thing that stands for another thing, and there is such a close relationship between these two things that one can be substituted for the other. The sign, the bread and the wine, has such a close relationship between the body that was bruised and beaten and hung upon that tree and the blood that was shed, that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ can be substituted for the bread and the wine and vice versa. And you see this over and over in the Scriptures with the sacraments. So, for example, in Genesis 17, God will say, circumcision is the covenant. Is circumcision the covenant? No. But there was such a close relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant circumcision that God could say, this is my covenant circumcision. Just one substituted for the other. We do it in our language all the time when I say something like the White House said, You don't think, wait, there's a house that has a mouth on it, and it's going like this. No, you know what I mean. It represents the president, his administration, and you know that that's what we're conveying. It's a metonymy. Luther said, though Christ must be present if he says this is. But Zwingli was right. Here's the problem. It's a Christological problem, your view of Christ. And Luther understood that he had a problem here. You see, Christ, as Luther rightfully asserted, Christ is one person with two natures. He is truly divine and He is truly man. Two natures, one person. Truly divine, truly man, but one person. And where is His person? It's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. If He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, bodily then how can he be present here at our Savior Lutheran in Lansing and uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran in Kalamazoo and First Lutheran in Tokyo, Japan? How can he be bodily or locally present in each of those places when he is bodily present at the right hand of the Father? He's one person. Well, Luther's no dummy. He saw that he had a problem, and so he developed the doctrine He called it the ubiquity of Christ. And it is this. Christ is truly divine and it is truly human. Two natures in one person. And Luther said that what Christ does is that some of his attributes of his deity, of his divinity, are translated or attributed to his humanity so that his omnipresence, which is true of his divinity, is communicated to his humanity, so that he can bodily be in multiple places at multiple times. But there's a problem with this. Swingley was right. It does violence to the person of Christ. We need Christ to be truly human. And that true humanity is compromised by such a view. He is then something other than truly human. And to be our mediator, he, he must have our humanity. So what's the answer? I love Calvin in history. Calvin wrote one time, he thought that if he had been at Marburg, he could have settled it all for everybody. I think he's probably right here. Calvin rightfully understood that it must be more than a mere sign, is uh, Zwinglians teach, and it can't be that Christ is locally or bodily present, physically present at the table, but He must be present it's not the absence of Christ, the Zwinglian view, which is an under-realized eschatology. It's not the presence of Christ bodily in the Lutheran and Roman Catholic view, which is an over-realized, an, an over-realized eschatology. It is that He is present spiritually, Calvin said. He's with us spiritually as we come to the table and we feast upon Him. Calvin rightly understood that our participation in Christ himself must be a participation in the whole person of Christ, and Christ can't be divided. And therefore, if we are receiving blessing in the sacrament, if we're going to do justice to the language of the institution of the sacrament, then Christ must be present, and he's present with us spiritually. He meets with us at the table spiritually. So that when you and I come to the table, we're truly feasting upon Him. But not with your mouth, but with your hearts. That you're consuming Him by faith as you come to the table. That we can truly say that we are eating the body of Christ and we are drinking the blood of Christ spiritually by faith. And that we are having a covenant renewal meal with him. He is seated with us and he has laid it out before us and he says, Come and eat and drink of me. And there's blessing there. I don't understand everything that that means. You know, Paul will use the word mysterion or mystery to speak of the Lord's table in the New Testament, and rightfully so. There's mystery. I don't understand everything it means. Calvin said this. He said, to speak more plainly, I'd rather experience than understand it. And that's right. But He's with us at the table. And we feast upon Him at the table, spiritually by faith. He seals to us as we come to Him all His blessings. It's not just a bare sign. It's not just a memorial. There is a sealing that occurs as you and I come to the table. It's not that Christ just died. I'm not just seeing that He died. And not that He just died for sinners. I'm seeing as I take it that He died for me. That as I see that bread, not that His body was just bruised for sinners, but His body was bruised for me. That as I take that cup, that it wasn't just that His blood was shed for sinners, His blood was shed for me. And it presses it home upon my soul. It seals those benefits to me. Because I come in faith as a Christian. There's blessings. And in this way, true grace is given in the sacrament. It's not just a bare sign. It's a true means of grace to you, Christian. It is also a sign and seal of our union with one another. It is a sign and seal of our union with Christ. It is a sign and seal of our union with one another. You'll notice in the text that this is a corporate meal that Jesus enjoyed with all the disciples. He says in verse 28 that He gave it to them. He speaks of pouring out His blood, quote, for many. There is a corporate nature to this sacrament. When we take the cup and when we take the bread, it serves as a true sign and true seal of our union with Christ, but also of our union with one another. If we weren't all germophobes, we would partake of the cup like the church did for centuries. You'll notice in the text they're taking one cup. And we would just pass that cup around and we would all drink from one cup. Why? Because we are united to one Christ and we are united in one body. We take together, we recognize that we belong to one another. And so when we take, it is sealed to us and signified to us that we owe one another, we owe one another love and forgiveness and service and fellowship and truth and our gifts and our very lives. We're united together. Especially in a season like this, you and I are to be reminded of that when we come to the table. The Lord gave us a sacrament to remind us. And isn't it fascinating? He gave us a sacrament to remind us not only that we belong to Him, but that we belong to one another. Can a Christian live without the church? And the answer is not for very long. You can't for very long. Why? Because we've been united together. We all need to hear this after the events of this past year. It would have been one thing to go through COVID. It was quite another to go through COVID in an election year, and then for that year to be filled with racial and ethnic concerns as well. If you had told me 18 months ago that our time and energy would constantly be consumed with discussions and conversations and emails and debates about mass or no mass, I would have laughed at you. And yet that's what has happened. And I think in many ways, that three-by-five-inch piece of cloth that we put over our nose and our mouths has become a type of sacrament. become a sign, or a non-sign, depending on where you're at. A sign of other things, a promise is made, of convictions held, this is true whether you wear one or you don't wear one. And it seals to us these convictions. We feel affirmed in it, whether we're wearing one or we're not wearing one. Think about all that comes to be signified and sealed in this three-by-five-inch piece of cloth that we put upon our mouths. Politics and personal freedoms and governmental control and love of neighbor and classism and disease and lawfulness and freedom of worship and personhood. It all meets right here in a three-by-five-inch piece of cloth. It speaks of our union or our non-union with others or so we've made it out to be within the culture and within our own church. It's created hurt and pain and disappointment and discouragement and anger and even bitterness on both sides of the equation. It's not unique in our church. It's true in the American church. But here's what Christ reminds us this morning. There's greater lasting, a greater lasting sacrament that points to a greater eternal truth. At the table, we have proclaimed to all of us that we're united, not simply united to Christ, but united to one another. I could take the most COVID concerned secular person in our society and place them over here on this part of the platform and take the most COVID concerned member of our congregation and place them right over there on the platform next to them, and I could take the most liberty concerned secular person in our culture and put them on that side of the platform and take the most liberty concerned person in our congregation and pla- place them on that side of the platform, and you know what should happen. It's like magnets the two Christians should be drawn to each other in the center of the room because they have the greatest in common. That's what should happen. The church does not have poles. There are not divisions within it. There are not camps. But you say there are. You often hear Christians say the church needs to be united. But it doesn't need to be united. Jesus makes it clear to you and I by the sacrament that the church is united. It's not in doubt. The church is in union with It's Lord and it's Christ and in union with one another. Our union is not in question. The only question that remains is whether we are living in light of it. The reality exists. Now we're to experience it. We have union. The question is whether there is communion and whether that is being enjoyed. We have union. As Paul says in Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no not male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are. And so now we're just to simply live like it. They will know you by your love for one another. We have union with Christ and with one another that is symbolized and that is sealed. As you and I come to the table, we have union. The question is whether we are living in communion. That's why when we come to the table that you and I search ourselves. There's a rightness to that. Paul will say that we're to discern the body when we come to the table. And he is surely speaking about the sacrament and knowing what it is that's occurring. But he's also speaking about what the body and your inclusion in this body. And so, when we come to the sacrament, you and I are to search ourselves. We're to see, look, we already have union by faith, by the gift of the Spirit, according to His grace. We have union with Christ, but that union, which is never in jeopardy, the communion that we share with Him can be disrupted because I have sinned. And there is an unrepentant sin in my life, a sin that I know that I keep pushing to the background. And so it's interrupted my communion with Christ. And so when I come to the table, I'm to search myself. Is there any unrepentant sin in my life? But it's not only true here vertically, it is also true here horizontally. When I come to the table, I am to search myself. I have union. But are there barriers to my communion? And is there sin here? As we discern that, it is not just the, the thou shalt nots, but the thou shalt, right? Both sides of the Ten Commandments. Not just, have I not said negative things about my brothers and sisters of Christ? Have I not been unwilling to forgive? Not that I just not haven't been concerned about them, but have I actively pursued them in love? Have I been extending forgiveness? Have I been considering others better than myself? Have I been pursuing their sins of omission and commission? Am I living in light of what is true, eternally true? If you allow me just to press in a little more here, we need people who think differently from us. Often said, I am a Presbyterian by conviction in two different ways. One is biblically. I believe that this form of government is what the Scriptures teach. But I am also one practically. I believe in the depravity of man. And I believe it is the best system going to check that depravity. You don't want this church to be where I declare things by divine fiat. You don't want that and I don't want that. You don't want where things are decided by the mass and there being a majority in the mass that rules over all the rest. You don't want that. Now, there is a check in that Presbyterian style of government where you have a number of men that are meeting together and praying through things, and they are going to be at different places with different things, and they arrive at decisions together, and they are checking one. I often say, I'm thankful to be a Presbyterian because I need people to the left of me, and I need people to the right on me on whatever given issue it is because they pull me in ways that I can't see. I am blind to my own fallenness. And this man, though I may not agree with everywhere that he goes, there are certain things that he is passionate about and concerned about and that he is gripped by that you know what I need to be awakened to. And so here, and there's just that polling that happens. It's one of the means of sanctification in our lives. Lord uses people that think differently from us to refine us and shape us and face us to force ourselves none of us has a corner on truth some have odd views and different perspective that at times is unhelpful but we don't cancel them because they're part of the family part of the family. My uh, mom, growing up, had an uncle that did something that was very odd. When they would gather together for family reunions, he would always take his shoes and his socks off and call all the nieces and nephews over to say, look at my toes. Odd. But you don't cancel family reunions because he's odd. Odd. You don't avoid him because he's odd. You still get together because you're family. On this Mother's Day, some of you had wonderful moms. I had one of the greatest gifts of a mom. Some of you did not. She wasn't loving. She wasn't great. But all of us, Mom's still family. She yelled at times, and we forgave her. She disregarded us at times, and we forgave her. She didn't think the same way that we did all the time. And often she was right, but we still lived with her because she's family. Don't just cancel it and move on. Now, if someone is advocating sin or false teaching, we, of course, are to stand against that and we're to oppose that vehemently. But we have different perspectives and we have different passions, and that is fine. And when we come to the table, we all come together and none of us has a higher chair than anyone else at the table. None of us sits at the head. The Lord Jesus sits at the head. And he is my Lord, and he is their Lord. I'm not. We're united to Christ, and we are united to one another. Quickly, let me just give a quick few answers to quick questions that have been asked over the last year about the Lord's table. Why do we warn people when we come to the table and say you should only take if you belong to a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church in good standing? You'll notice in the text that Jesus warns the disciples before He institutes the Lord's Supper that one of them is going to betray Him. And we'll see in the other Gospels that as He does so, that Judas will then be excused by Christ. Christ will say to him, go and do. And Judas will leave. And why is that? Because he's not to participate in the Lord's table. It is a form of discipline that Jesus is exercising even there. It is what we would call fencing the table. We fence the table at University Reformed Church because as the Reformers said, there are three things that mark a church. Three things that mark a church, the preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. And those three things, they live together and they fall together. If one of them is not practiced, then the other two will fall and it will cease to be a church. And the Lord has instituted elders as the under shepherds in the church to oversee the preach word, to oversee the administration of the sacraments, and to oversee church discipline. And so they safeguard those three things. Now they safeguard those by safeguarding the members as they are admitted in and as they are disciplined and cast out of the church. The elders have been given the keys of the kingdom. They bind on earth and they loose on earth as is bound in heaven and loosed in heaven. And so they have to know who is part of the whole, who is within. Paul will say there in 1 Corinthians that you are to cast them out from among you. Well, how do you know what among you is if that among you is not defined? You have to have membership. And the elders admit into membership, and then part of what they do is overseeing those spiritual lives. They administer discipline when there is unrepentant sin, and that is tied to the Lord's table because that is one of the acts of discipline. You can't come to the Lord's table as it is tied to the preached Word. The Word and the table go together. And so they are seeking to safeguard both the sacrament and we're also seeking to safeguard the unrepentant sinner because if they come to the table unworthily, then they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And so we fence the table. We give a warning. You need to be a member of a Bible-proclaiming, Bible-believing church in good standing to come to the table. Not because this is our table. But because it's the Lord's table and this is the Lord's church and He has chosen to work this way. And so if you belong to any other church out there, you're welcome at the table as long as you're in good standing. It's a Bible-believing, Bible-proclaiming church. So we fence the table. Second, why didn't we practice virtual communion during the height of covid because we can't. That's not an option for us. It's a community sacrament. It's something that belongs to the church as it is gathered together. Paul there in 1 Corinthians 11, when he is talking through the Lord's table, in that very short section of 1 Corinthians, it is fascinating. He says three separate times. He's emphasizing it. He says this, when you gather together, when you gather together, It is a sign and seal not only of my individual union with Christ, it is a sign and seal of my union with you and your union with me. It happens when we come together. Even as a pastor, I've been ordained to preach the Word and minister the sacraments, and I would never, ever think about practicing the Lord's Table with my family at home. Because we're not the church. We are the church. And we do this when we gather. Now, understand, some felt like they were missing out on some grace during that time by not participating in the Lord's table, some of you longer than others. Were you missing out on grace? And the answer is no and yes. No, you weren't missing out on grace in the sense that the grace that is given to you through the preached word is the same as the grace that is extended to you in the Lord's table. It's the same grace that you receive by faith. But yes, you are missing as we come to the table and as we partake together. Virtual communion, I know a lot of churches were implementing it during those weeks or months and... They did so because they wanted things to be as normal as possible, but things weren't normal. And it shouldn't have felt normal. In one very real sense, you and I have to feel as though we weren't receiving everything in a time like that. It's right to feel tension that we were not assembled together to receive the Word and table. In fact, I hope that is one of the things that comes out of COVID for us as a body, is that we realize how much our souls and spirits desperately need this. It doesn't work for me to just live my Christian life alone with me and Jesus. It doesn't work for me just to live my Christian life alone with me and Jesus and my family. I need this. I need this the church of god gathered together in corporate worship sitting underneath the preached word and i need to sit down at the table with my brothers and sisters in christ i need this notice that even in jesus' own words he will not drink the fruit of the vine meaning the wine until he is back with his people bodily isn't that interesting It's instructive. He instituted the Lord's table so that we could participate with Him in ongoing spiritual communion and yet He refuses to partake of the meal until He Himself could eat and drink it again when He is physically present with His people. That's instructive. Oh, I have like ten of these. Let me do one more. Lastly, is the Lord's Supper a dower or a happy moment in the service? Is the Lord's Supper a dower or a happy moment in the service? I want to rephrase that. Someone asked me that. I would want to rephrase it and say it is a seriously joyous moment in the service. Look, it's serious. You and I, this is not mere remembrance. It's not just looking back and just allowing our imaginations to flow. This is a real communing with the risen Christ at the table. You and I are feasting upon him. So there's a real seriousness here. That's why Paul says, look, don't, don't, don't just approach this, this table in a wanton manner. There should be real preparation that you and I go through as we come to the table. When you know it's a Lord's Table Sunday that's coming, Saturday night you should be preparing yourself. You shouldn't be rushing in the door on Sunday morning. You should know, I'm coming down to sit and to eat, to feast upon my Lord and Savior. There's real preparation. And there's a real searching that should happen where I'm searching, is there anything that has disrupted my communion with my living Christ? Is there anything that has disrupted my communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there ways that I'm not seeking to honor Him? Are there ways that I'm not seeking to love others? Have I gotten outside my affinity group? Am I listening to others? Am I ministering to others? Am I loving others that are unlike me? I'm searching myself. And so there is an inward reflection. There is a seriousness. But there should be a joy. A joy. You're coming to the table with your Savior, and he welcomes you and says, come and eat. He has provided the entire feast, and he says, come and sit at the table and eat what I have provided. And by the way, what I have provided is myself and all my blessings that come with me. Eat. I invite somebody, a family, over to my house, and we have dinner. And I go out, and I buy the groceries, and I spend money that... I have earned and I buy all of those groceries and then I spend time cooking this meal and I lay that meal out on the table. If a family then sits down at my table and all they have is a dour look and they are all they are is introspective and they sit there with a frowny face the entire meal, I'm offended. I provided this. You're, you're at my table. There's to be Joy much more our Savior. He's given everything for His people. And He says, you know what? I know you're sinners still. Come. Come and eat. This is nourishment for your soul. I'm not distant from you. I am here with you now, spiritually. Feed upon me and be strengthened. Our souls should be doing backflips of joy. We've been united to Him. We've been united to one another. And He gives us this sacrament as a sign and seal of that reality. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for Your kindness to us and the giving of these sacraments to prop up our faith. How quickly we would disregard the word that we hear preached, disregard our Savior and disregard one another. Oh, we are truly frail and feeble beings. So we thank you for the gift of this bread and this cup and pray that you would use it for the nourishment of our souls.